Section 10, Book 12, Part 2 of The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karina Marcos. The Autobiography of Goethe, Volume 2, From My Life, Poetry and Truth, by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Translated by John Oxenford, 1812-1877. Book 12, Part 2. However, a speedy communication among the friends of literature was already introduced. The Musenalmanach, footnote, annual publications devoted to poetry only, trans, end footnote, united all the young poets with each other, the journals united the poet with other authors. My own pleasure in production was boundless. To what I had produced I remained indifferent, only when, in social circles, I made it present myself and others, my affection for it was renewed. Moreover, many persons took an interest in both my larger and smaller works, because I urgently pressed everyone who felt in any degree inclined and adapted to production to produce something independently, after his own fashion, and was, in turn, challenged by all to new poetising and writing. These mutual impulses, which were carried even to an extreme, gave everyone a happy influence in his own fashion, and from this whirling and working, this living and letting live, this taking and giving, which was carried on by so many youths, from their own free hearts, without any theatrical guiding star, according to the innate character of each, and without any special design, arose that famed, extolled, and decried epoch in literature, when a mass of young genial men, with all that audacity and assumption which is peculiar to their own period of youth, produced by the application of their powers much that was good, and by the abuse of these much ill-feeling and mischief, and it is, indeed, the action and reaction which proceeded from this source that formed the chief theme of this volume. In what can young people take the highest interest? How are they to excite interest among those of their own age, if they are not animated by love, and if affairs of the heart, whatever kind they may be, are not living within them? I had in secret to complain of a love I had lost. This may be mild and tolerant, and more agreeable to society than in those brilliant times when nothing reminded me of a want or a fault, and I went storming along completely without restraint. Frederica's answer to a written adieu rent my heart. It was the same hand, the same tone of thought, the same feeling which had formed itself for me and by me. I now, for the first time, felt the loss which she suffered, and saw no means to supply it, or even to alleviate it. She was completely present to me. I always felt that she was wanting to me, and, what was worst of all, I could not forgive myself for my own misfortune. Gretchen had been taken away from me, Annette had left me, now for the first time I was guilty. I had wounded the most beautiful heart to its very depths, and the period of a gloomy repentance, with the absence of a refreshing love to which I had grown accustomed, was most agonising, nay, insupportable. But man will live, and hence I took an honest interest in others. I sought to disentangle their embarrassments, and to unite what was about to part, that they might not have the same lot as myself. 
they were hence accustomed to call me the confidant and on account of wandering about the district the wanderer in producing that calm for my mind which i felt under the open skies in the valleys on the heights in the fields and in the woods the situation of frankfort was serviceable as it lay in the middle between darmstadt and hamburg two pleasant places which were on good terms with each other through the relationship of both courts i accustomed myself to live on the road and like a messenger to wander about between the mountains and the flat country often i went alone or in company through my native city as if it did not at all concern me dined at one of the great inns in the high street and after dinner went further on my way more than ever was i directed to the open world and to free nature on my way i sang to myself strange hymns and ditherumbes of which one was entitled the wanderer's storm song wanderer's sturmliad still remains this half nonsense i sang aloud in an impassioned manner when i have found myself in a terrific storm which i was obliged to meet my heart was untouched and unoccupied i conscientiously avoided all closer connection with ladies and thus it remained concealed from me that inattentive and unconscious as i was an amiable spirit was secretly hovering round me it was not until many years afterwards nay until after her death that i learned of her secret heavenly love in a manner that necessarily overwhelmed me but i was innocent and could purely and honestly pity an innocent being nay i could do this the more as the discovery occurred at an epoch when completely without passion i had the happiness of living for myself and my own intellectual inclinations at the time when i was pained by my grief at frederica's situation i again after my old fashion sought aid from poetry i again continued the poetical confession which i had commenced that by this self-tormenting penance i might be worthy of an internal absolution the two marias in gotts von berlinkingen and clarigo and the two bad characters who play the part of their lovers may have been the result of such penitent reflections but as in youth one soon overcomes mental wounds and diseases because a healthy system of organic life can rise up for a sick one and allow it time to grow healthy again corporeal exercises on many a favourable opportunity came forward with very advantageous effect and i was excited in many ways to man myself afresh and to seek new pleasures of life and enjoyments riding gradually took the place of those sauntering melancholy toilsome and at the same time tedious and aimless rambles on foot one reached one's end more quickly merrily and commodiously the young people again introduced fencing but in particular on the setting in of winter a new world was revealed to us since i at once determined to skate an exercise which i had never attempted and in a short time by practice reflection and perseverance brought it as far as was necessary to enjoy with others a gay animated course on the ice without wishing to distinguish myself for this new joyous activity we were also indebted to klopstock to his enthusiasm for this happy species of motion which private accounts confirmed while his odes gave an undeniable evidence of it i still exactly remember that on a cheerful frosty morning i sprang out of bed and uttered aloud these passages 
Already, glad with feeling of health, far down along the shore, I have whitened the covering crystal. How does the winter's advancing day softly illumine the lake? The night has cast the glittering frost, like stars, upon it. My hesitating and wavering resolution was fixed at once, and I flew straight to the place where so old a beginner might with some degree of propriety make his first trial. And indeed, this manifestation of our strength well deserved to be commended by Klopstock, for it is an exercise which brings us into contact with the freshest childhood, summons the youth to the full enjoyment of his suppleness, and is fitted to keep off a stagnant old age. We were immoderately addicted to this pleasure. To pass thus a splendid Sunday on the ice did not satisfy us. We continued our movement late into the night. For as other exertions fatigue the body, so does this give it a constantly new power. The full moon rising from the clouds, over the wide nocturnal meadows, which were frozen into fields of ice, the night breeze, which rustled towards us on our course, the solemn thunder of the ice, which sunk as the water decreased, the strange echo of our own movements, rendered the scenes of Ossian just present to our minds. Now this friend, now that, uttered an ode of Klopstock's, in a declamatory recitative, and if we found ourselves together at dawn, the unfeigned praise of the author of our joys broke forth. And should he not be immortal, who found for us health and joys which the horse, though bold in his course, never gave, and which even the ball is without? Such gratitude is earned by a man who knows how to honour and worthily to extend an earthly act by spiritual incitement. And thus, as children of talent, whose mental gifts have, at an early period, been cultivated to an extraordinary degree, return, if they can, to the simplest sports of youth, did we, too, often forget our calling to more serious things. Nevertheless, this very motion, so often carried on in solitude, this agreeable soaring in undetermined space again excited many of my internal wants which had for a time lain dormant and i have been indebted to such hours for a more speedy elaboration of older plans the darker ages of german history had always occupied my desire for knowledge and my imagination the thought of dramatizing goetz von berlichingen with all the circumstances of his time was one which i much liked and valued I industriously read the chief authors, to Dat's work, De Pace Publica, I devoted all my attention. I had sedulously studied it through, and rendered those singular details as visible to me as possible. These endeavours, which were directed to moral and poetical ends, I could also use in another direction, and I was now to visit Wetzlar. I had sufficient historical preparation, for the imperial chamber had arisen in consequence of the public tranquillity, and its history could serve as an important clue through the confused events of Germany. Indeed, the constitution of the courts and armies gives the most accurate insight into the constitution of every empire. Even the finances, the influence of which are considered so important, come much less under consideration if the whole is deficient, it is only necessary to take from the individual what he has laboriously scraped together, and thus the state is always sufficiently rich. What occurred to me at Wetzlar is of no great importance, 
but it may inspire a greater interest if the reader will not disdain a cursory history of the imperial chamber in order to render present to his mind the unfavourable moment at which i arrived there the lords of the earth are such principally because they can assemble around them in war the bravest and most resolute and in peace the wisest and most just even to the state of a german emperor belonged a court of this kind which always accompanied him in his expeditions through the empire but neither this precaution nor the swabian law which prevailed in the south of germany nor the saxon law which prevailed in the north neither the judges appointed to maintain them nor the decisions of the peers of the contending parties neither the umpires recognized by agreement nor friendly compacts instituted by the clergy nothing in short could quiet that excited chivalric spirit of feuds which had been roused fostered and made a custom among the germans by internal discord by foreign campaigns by the crusades especially and even by judicial usages to the emperor as well as to the powerful estates these squabbles were extremely annoying while through them the less powerful became troublesome to each other and if they combined to the great also all outward strength was paralyzed while internal order was destroyed and besides this a great part of the country was still encumbered with the vemgericht of the horrors of which a notion may be formed if we think that it degenerated into a secret police which at last even fell into the hands of private persons many attempts to steer against these evils had been made in vain until at last the estates urgently proposed a court formed from among themselves this proposal well meant as it might have been nevertheless indicated an extension of the privileges of the estates and a limitation of the imperial power under frederick the third the matter is delayed his son maximilian being pressed from without complies he appoints the chief judge the estates send the assistance there were to be four and twenty of them but at first twelve are thought sufficient an universal fault of which men are guilty in their undertakings was the first and perpetual fundamental defect of the imperial chamber insufficient means were applied to a great end the number of the assessors was too small how was the difficult and extensive problem to be solved by them but who could urge an efficient arrangement the emperor could not favour an institution which seemed to work more against him than for him far more reason had he to complete the formation of his own court his own council if on the other hand we regard the interest of the estates all that they could properly have to do with was the stoppage of bloodshed whether the wound was healed did not so much concern them and now there was to be besides a new expense it may not have been quite plainly seen that by this institution every prince increased his retinue for a decided end indeed but who readily gives money for what is necessary every one would be satisfied if he could have what is useful for god's sake at first the assistants were to live on fees then followed a moderate grant from the estates both were scanty but to meet the great and striking exigency willing clever and industrious men were found and the court was established whether it was perceived that the question here was concerning only the alleviation and not the cure of the evil 
or whether, as in similar cases, the flattering hope was entertained that much was to be done with little, is not to be decided. It is enough that the court served rather as a pretext to punish the originators of mischief, than completely to prevent wrong. But it has scarcely met, than a power grows out of itself. It feels the eminence on which it is placed. It recognises its own great political importance. It now endeavours, by a striking activity, to acquire for itself a more decided respect. They briskly got through what can and must be rapidly dispatched, what can be decided at the moment, or what can otherwise be easily judged, and thus, throughout the empire, they appear effective and dignified. On the other hand, matters of weightier import, the lawsuits, properly so called, remained behindhand, and this was no misfortune. The only concern of the state is that possession shall be certain and secure. Whether it is also legal is of less consequence. Hence, from the monstrous and ever-swelling number of delayed suits, no mischief arose to the empire. Against people who employed force, provision was already made, and with such matters could be settled, but those, on the other hand, who legally disputed about possession, lived, enjoyed, or starved as they could. They died, were ruined, or made it up. But all this was the good or evil of individual families. The empire was gradually tranquillised. For the imperial chamber was endowed with a legal club law against the disobedient. Had it been able to publish the ban, this would have been more effective. But now, what with the sometimes increased, sometimes diminished number of assessors, what with the many interruptions, what with the removal of the court from one place to another, these arrears, these records necessarily increase to an infinite extent. Now, in the distress of war, a part of the archives was sent for safety from Spire to Aschaffenburg, a part to Worms, the third fell into the hands of the French, who thought they had gained the state archives, but would afterwards have been glad to get rid of such a chaos of paper, if any one would but have furnished the carriages. During the negotiations for the peace of Westphalia, the chosen men, who were assembled, plainly saw what sort of a lever was required to move from its place a load like that of Sisyphus. Fifty assessors were now to be appointed, but the number was never made up. The half of it was again made to suffice, because the expense appeared too great. But if the parties interested had all seen their advantage in the matter, the whole might well have been afforded. To pay five-and-twenty assessors about one hundred thousand florins, gulden, were required, and how easily could double that amount have been raised in Germany? The proposition to endow the imperial chamber which confiscated church property could not pass, for how could the two religious parties agree to such a sacrifice? The Catholics were not willing to lose any more, and the Protestants wished to employ what they had gained, each for his own private ends. The division of the empire into two religious parties had here, in several respects, the worst influence. The interest which the estates took in this their court diminished more and more. The more powerful wished to free themselves from the confederation, licenses exempting their possessor from being prosecuted before any higher tribunal was sought with more and more eagerness. 
the greater kept back with their payments, while the lesser, who, moreover, believed themselves wronged in the estimates, delayed as long as they could. How difficult was it, therefore, to raise the supplies necessary for payment? Hence arose a new occupation, a new loss of time for the chamber. Previously the so-called annual visitations had taken care of this matter. Princes in person, or their counsellors, went only for months or weeks to the place of the court, examined the state of the treasury, investigated the arrears, and undertook to get them in. At the same time, if anything was about to create an impediment in the course of law or the court, or any abuse to creep in, they were authorised to provide a remedy. The faults of the institution they were to discover and remove, but it was not till afterwards that the investigation and punishment of the personal crimes of its members became a part of their duty. But because parties engaged in litigation always like to extend their hopes a moment longer, and on this account always seek and appeal to higher authorities, so did these visitators become a court of revision, from which, at first in determined manifest cases, persons hoped to find restitution, but at last in all cases delay and perpetuation of the controversy, to which the appeal to the imperial diet and the endeavour of the two religious parties, if not to outweigh each other, at any rate to preserve an equilibrium, contributed their part. But if one considers what this court might have been without such obstacles, without such disturbing and destructive conditions, one cannot imagine it remarkable and important enough. Had it been supplied at the beginning with a sufficient number of persons, had a sufficient support been secured to them, the monstrous influence which this body might have attained, considering the aptness of the Germans, would have been immeasurable. The honourable title of Amphictions, which was only bestowed on them oratorically, they would actually have deserved. Nay, they might have elevated themselves into an intermediate power, while revered by the head and the members. But far removed from such great effects, the court, excepting for a short time under Charles V, and before the Thirty Years' War, dragged itself miserably along. One often cannot understand how men could be found for such a thankless and melancholy employment. But what a man does every day he puts up with, if he has any talent for it, even if he does not exactly see that anything will come of it. The German especially is of this persevering turn of mind, and thus for three hundred years the worthiest men have employed themselves on these labours and objects. A characteristic gallery of such figures would even now excite interest and inspire courage. For it is just in such anarchical times that the able man takes the strongest position, and he who desires what is good finds himself right in his place. Thus, for instance, the Directorium of Furstenberg was still held in blessed memory, and with the death of this excellent man begins the epoch of many pernicious abuses. But all these defects, whether later or earlier, arose from one only original source, the small number of persons. It was decreed that the assistants were to act in a fixed order, and according to a determined series. Every one could know when the turn would come to him, and which of the cases belonging to him it would affect. He could work up to this point, he could prepare himself. 
but now the innumerable arrears had heaped themselves up, and they were forced to resolve to select the more important cases, and to deal with them out of order. But with a pressure of important affairs, the decision as to which matter has the more weight is difficult, and selection leaves room for favour. Now another critical case occurred. The referent tormented both himself and the court with a difficult involved affair, and at last no one was found willing to take up the judgment. The parties had come to an agreement, had separated, had died, had changed their minds. Hence they resolved to take in hand only the cases of which they were reminded. They wished to be convinced of the continued obstinacy of the parties, and hence was given an introduction to the greatest defects, for he who commends his affairs must commend them to somebody, and to whom can one commend them better than to him who has them already in his hands? To keep this one regularly secret was impossible, for how could he remain concealed with so many subordinates, all acquainted with the matter? If acceleration is requested, favour may well be requested likewise, for the very fact that people urge their cause shows that they consider it just. This will perhaps not be done in a direct manner, certainly it will be first done through subordinates. These must be gained over, and thus an introduction is given to all sorts of intrigues and briberies. The Emperor Joseph, following his own impulse, and in imitation of Frederick, first directed his attention to arms and the administration of justice. He cast his eyes upon the imperial chamber, traditional wrongs, introduced abuses had not remained unknown to him. Even here something was to be stirred up, shaken, and done. Without inquiring whether it was his imperial right, without foreseeing the possibility of a happy result, he proposed a revival of the visitation, and hastened its opening. For one hundred and sixty years no regular visitation had taken place. A monstrous chaos of papers lay swelled up and increased every year, since the seventeen assessors were not even able to dispatch the current business. Twenty thousand processes were heaped up, sixty could be settled every year, and double that number was brought forward. Besides, it was not a small number of revisions that awaited the visitators. They were estimated at fifty thousand. Many other abuses, in addition to this, hindered the course of justice, but the most critical matter of all was the personal delinquency of some assessors, which appeared in the background. When I was about to go to Wetzlar, the visitation had been already for some years in operation. The parties accused had been suspended from office, the investigation had been carried a long way, and because the masters and commissioners of German political law could not let pass this opportunity of exhibiting their sagacity and devoting it to the common weal, several profound, well-designed works appeared, from which every one who possessed only some preparatory knowledge could derive solid instruction. When on this occasion they went back into the constitution of the empire, and the books written upon it, it was striking to me how the monstrous condition of this thoroughly diseased body, which was kept alive by a miracle alone, was the very thing that most suited the learned. For the venerable German industry, which was more directed to the collection and development of details than to results, found here an inexhaustible impulse to new employment, 
and whether the empire was opposed to the emperor, the lesser to the greater estates, or the Catholics to the Protestants, there was necessarily always, according to the diversity of interest, a diversity of opinion, and always an occasion for new contests and controversies. Since I had rendered all these older and newer circumstances as present to my mind as possible, it was impossible for me to promise myself much pleasure from my abode at Wetzlar. The prospect of finding in a city, which was indeed well situated, but small and ill-built, a double world, first the domestic, old traditional world, then a foreign new one, authorised to scrutinise the other with severity, a judging and a judged tribunal, many an inhabitant in fear and anxiety, lest he might also be drawn into the impending investigation, persons of consideration, long held in respect, convicted of the most scandalous misdeeds, and marked out for disgraceful punishment. All this together made the most dismal picture, and could not lure me to go deeper into a business which, involved in itself, seemed so much perplexed by wrong. That, excepting the German civil and public law, I should find nothing remarkable in the scientific way, that I should be without all poetical communication, I thought I could foresee, when, after some delay, the desire of altering my situation more than impulse to knowledge led me to this spot. But how surprised I was, when, instead of a crabbed society, a third academical life sprang towards me. At a large table d'hôte, I found a number of young lively people, nearly all subordinates to the commission. They gave me a friendly reception, and the very first day it remained no secret to me that they had cheered their noon meetings by a romantic fiction. With much wit and cheerfulness, they represented a table of knights. At the top sat the Grand Master, by his side the Chancellor, then the most important officers of the state. Now followed the knights, according to their seniority. Strangers, on the other hand, who visited, were forced to be content with the lowest places, and to these the conversation was almost unintelligible, because the language of the society, in addition to the chivalric expressions, was enriched with many allusions. To everyone a name with an epithet was assigned. Me they called Gotts von Berlichingen the Honest. The former I earned by the attention to the gallant German patriarch, the latter by my upright affection and devotion for the eminent men with whom I became acquainted. To the Count von Kielmansegg I was much indebted during this residence. He was the most serious of all, highly clever, and to be relied on. There was von Goe, a man hard to be deciphered and described, a blunt, kind, quietly reserved Hanoverian figure. He was not wanting in talent of various kinds. It was con conjectured concerning him that he was a natural son. He loved, besides, a certain mysterious deportment, and concealed his most peculiar wishes and plans under various eccentricities, as indeed he was, properly speaking, the very soul of the odd confederation of knights, without having striven to attain the post of Grand Master. On the contrary, when, just at this time, the head of the knight had departed, he caused another to be elected, and through him exercised his influence. 
thus he managed so to direct several little trifles that they appeared of importance and could be carried out in mythical forms but with all this no serious purpose could be remarked in him he was only concerned to get rid of the tedium which he and his colleagues during their protracted occupation necessarily felt and to fill up the empty space if only with cobwebs for the rest this mythical caricature was carried on with great external seriousness and no one found it ridiculous if a certain mill was treated as a castle and the miller as lord of the fortress if the four sons of hymon was declared a canonical book and on the occasion of ceremonics extracts from it were read with veneration the dubbing of knights took place with traditional symbols borrowed from several orders of knighthood a chief motive for jest was the fact that what was manifest was treated as a secret the affair was carried on publicly and yet nothing was to be said about it the list of the whole body of knights was printed with as much importance as a calendar of the imperial diet and if families ventured to scoff at this and to declare the whole matter absurd and ridiculous they were punished by an intrigue being carried on until a solemn husband or near relation was induced to join the company and to be dubbed a knight for then there was a splendid burst of malicious joy at the annoyance of the connections into this chivalric state of existence another strange order had insinuated itself which was to be philosophical and mystical and had no name of its own the first degree was called the transition the second the transition's transition the third the transition's transition to the transition and the fourth the transition's transition to the transition's transition to interpret the high sense of this series of degrees was now the duty of the initiated and this was done according to the standard of a little printed book in which these strange words were explained or rather amplified in a manner still more strange occupation with these things was the most desirable pastime the folly of berish and the perversity of lens seemed here to have united themselves i only repeat that not a trace of purpose was to be found behind these veils although i very readily took part in such fooleries had first brought into order the extracts from the four sons of hymon made proposals how they should be read on feasts and solemn occasions and even understood how to deliver them myself with great emphasis i had nevertheless grown weary of such things before and therefore as i missed my frankfurt and darmstadt circles i was highly pleased to have found gotter who attached himself to me with honest affection and to whom i showed in return a hearty good will his turn of mind was delicate clear and cheerful his talents were practised and well regulated he aimed at french elegance and was pleased with that part of english literature which is occupied with moral and agreeable subjects we passed together many pleasant hours in which we communicated to each other our knowledge plans and inclinations he excited me to many little works especially as being in connection with the people of gottingen he desired some of my poems for Bois almanac i thus came into contact with those who young and full of talent held themselves together and afterwards affected so much and in such various ways the two counts of stolberg burger voss holti 
and others were assembled in faith and spirit around Klopstock, whose influence extended in every direction. In such a poetical circle, which more and more extended itself, was developed at the same time with such manifold poetical merits, another turn of mind, to which I can give no exactly proper name. It might be called the need of independence, which always arises in time of peace, and exactly when, properly speaking, one is not dependent. In war we bear the rude force as well as we can, we feel ourselves physically and economically, but not morally, wounded. The constraint shames no one, and it is no disgraceful service to serve the time. We accustom ourselves to suffer from foes and friends, we have wishes, but no particular views. In peace, on the contrary, man's love of freedom becomes more and more prominent, and the more free one is, the more free one wishes to be. We will not tolerate anything over us, we will not be restrained, no one shall be restrained, and this tender, nay, morbid feeling appears in noble souls under the form of justice. This spirit and feeling then showed itself everywhere, and just because few were oppressed, it was wished to free even these from temporary oppression, and thus a certain moral feud, a mixture of individuals with the government, which, with laudable beginnings, led to inevitably unfortunate results. Voltaire, by the protection which he had bestowed on the family of Callas, had excited great attention and made himself respected. In Germany, the attempt of Lavata against the Landvogt, sheriff of the province, had been almost more striking and important. The aesthetical feeling, united with a youthful courage, strove forward, and as shortly before persons had studied to obtain offices, they now began to act as overlookers of those in office, and the time was near when the dramatist and novelist loved best to seek their villains among ministers and official persons. Hence arose a world, half real, half imaginary, of action and reaction, in which we afterwards lived to see the most violent informations and instigations which the writers of periodical publications and journals allowed themselves under the garb of justice, and went to work the more irresistibly, as they made the public believe that it was itself the true tribunal, a foolish notion, as no public has an executive power, and in dismembered Germany public opinion neither benefited nor injured any one. Among us young people there was indeed nothing to be traced which could have been culpable, but a certain similar notion, composed of poetry, morality, and a noble striving, and which was harmless but yet fruitless, had taken possession of us. By his Hermann's Schacht Footnote The Fight of Hermann the Arminius of Tacitus against the Romans. Trans. End footnote. And the dedication of it to Joseph II, Klopstock had produced a wonderful excitement. The Germans, who freed themselves from Roman oppression, were nobly and powerfully represented, and this picture was well suited to awaken the self-feeling of a nation. But because in peace patriotism really consists only in this, that everyone sweep his own door, minds his own business, and learns his own lesson that it may go well with his house, so did the feeling of fatherland, excited by Klopstock, find no object on which it could exercise itself. 
Frederick had saved the honour of one part of the Germans against an united world, and every member of the nation, by applause and reverence of this great prince, was allowed to share in his victory. But what was to come of this excited, warlike spirit of defiance? At first it was merely a poetical form, and the songs of the bards, afterwards so often blamed and even found ridiculous, were accumulated through this impulse, this incitement. There were no external enemies to fight, so people made tyrants for themselves, and for this purpose princes and their servants were obliged to bestow their figures, first only in general outline, but gradually with particulars. Here it was that poetry attached itself with vehemence to that interference with the administration of justice, which is blamed above, and it is remarkable to see poems of that time written in a spirit by which everything of a higher order, whether monarchical or aristocratic, is abolished. For my own part, I continued to make poetry the expression of my own whims and feelings. Little poems like The Wanderer belong to this time, they were inserted in the Gottingen Musenalmanach. But from whatever of the above-mentioned mania had worked itself into me, I shortly endeavoured to free myself in Gotts von Berlinkingen, since I described how in disordered times this brave, well-thinking man resolves to take the place of the law and the executive power, but is in despair when, to the supreme authority, which he recognises and reveres, he appears in an equivocal light, and even rebellious. By Klopstock's odes, it was not so much the northern mythology as the nomenclature of the divinities that had been introduced into German poetry, and although I gladly made use of everything else that was offered me, I could not bring myself to use this for the following causes. I had long become acquainted with the fables of the Edda, from the preface to Mallet's Danish History, and had at once made myself master of them. They belonged to those tales which, when asked by a company, I most willingly related. Herder put Resenius into my hands, and made me better acquainted with the heroic sagas. But all these things, worthy as I held them, I could not bring within the circle of my own poetic faculty. Nobly as they excited my imagination, they nevertheless entirely withdrew themselves from the sensuous perception, while the mythology of the Greeks, changed by the greatest artists in the world into visible, easily imagined forms, still existed before our own eyes in abundance. Gods in general I did not allow often to appear, because at all events they had their own abode out of nature, which I understood how to imitate. What now could have induced to substitute Verdun for Jupiter, and Thor for Mars, and instead of the southern, accurately described figures, to introduce forms of mist, nay, mere verbal sounds, into my poems? On the one side they were related to the equally formless heroes of Ossian, only they were ruder and more gigantic. On the other I brought them into contact with the cheerful tale, for the humoristic vein which runs through the whole northern mythos was to me highly pleasing and remarkable. It appeared to me the only one which jests with itself throughout, wondrous giants, magicians, and monsters opposed to an odd dynasty of gods, 
and only occupied in leading astray and deriding the highest persons during their government, while they threaten them, besides, with disgraceful and inevitable destruction. I felt a similar if not an equal interest for the Indian fables, which I at first learned to know from Dapper's travels, and likewise added with great pleasure to my store of tales. In subsequent repetitions I succeeded especially with the altar of Ram, and notwithstanding the great number of persons in this tale, the ape Hanuman remained the favourite of my public. But even these unformed and overformed monsters could not satisfy me in a true poetic sense. They lay too far from the truth, towards which my mind unceasingly strove. End of section 10